This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source, and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out Patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of The Washington Post... It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Salahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 22nd. Today, a novelist imagines Hillary Rodham's life without Bill Clinton and the power of touch. I heard someone describe this book as Pantsuit Nation fan fiction. (laughs) How accurate do you think that is? I'm delighted by that description. So, yeah, I think that that is pretty accurate. So I am Curtis Sittenfeld, and I just wrote a novel called Rodham, and it's a sort of reimagining of the life of Hillary Rodham if she had not married Bill Clinton back in the 70s. Curtis Sittenfeld is the best-selling author of several novels, including Prep and Eligible and American Wife, a fictionalized version of Laura Bush's life. Her new novel about Hillary Clinton starts from a real thing that happened in Clinton's life. Before she agreed to marry Bill, she rejected his proposal twice. This novel asks, what would have happened if she'd said no that third time? How would her life have unfolded differently? What I found so fascinating about this book wasn't just that it was about the Clintons, though Curtis is very public about the fact that she was a Clinton supporter. But the book is also about what it's like to be an ambitious woman in a world that still makes that really hard. Around the time of the election and and even after, I had this realization that school children who knew that Hillary was running for president in many cases, literally didn't know Bill Clinton existed. That concept sort of blew my mind and made me think, would the outcome of the election have been different if adults did not perceive Hillary and Bill as so interconnected? And that's what I found so interesting was that in many ways, Hillary Rodham's life ends up in similar places in terms of being in the world of politics and being around many of the characters that she is around now or or was in 2016, but basically without the chapter of being first lady saddling her record in some ways. You know, in some ways, there was like an infinite number of alternate lives I could have created for her. But like, it's almost like um, quickly you're going to be like, you're a novelist, not a scientist. Like, I'm going to start talking. You're going to be like, this doesn't make sense. But, you know, like if you if, if you do a scientific experiment, you can only sort of change one variable at a time to still like measure the results. And I felt mm-hmm. like if you remove Bill that changes so much that it's almost like like let her live a somewhat similar life and only yank bill out of it and see what happens instead of 
saying like, and then she moves to France. Like and then it's like two variables and you, I, that would have made me feel like I had lost my bearings. But I also thought it was curious that you had previously written American Wife, which is about this fictional first lady, though clearly based off of Laura Bush's life and her relationship with George Bush. But you didn't use their actual names in that book, even though you used a lot of the plot points from from her life. Why did you actually decide to just straight up say, I'm making a fictionalized version of Hillary Clinton's or Hillary Rodham's and Bill Clinton's life and not change their names? Because I changed the timeline or changed history in Rodham, it almost felt like it would be confusing or distracting to the reader to change multiple things. Whereas it so clearly is fiction, like it so clearly deviates from the historical record that I felt like it was fine to make it explicitly about her. And and even in terms of um, like... You know, American Wife, it's it's called American Wife. It, you know, the cover is sort of, it, it, it's, I, I still to this day, like, I'm not sure if the woman is wearing like a wedding dress or just a sort of fancy gown, but like some kind of like fancy white dress. But, you know, you can't see her face. And this is like, it's Hillary's face. It's called Rodham. I just, I just felt like this book is what it is. And I don't want to trick anyone into buying it. And like, you know, like if it has a sort of more generic cover and then they get home and then they think, oh my God, I'm, <laughs> I'm reading a book about Hillary Clinton by accident. Like, like I just, I feel to be like invested, let you have people... to know that like you're going into this caring yeah, about Hillary Clinton yeah, and her life. Yeah. And if, and if you don't want to read it, that's fine. Sort of like why be coy maybe? I'm curious about the research that you did for this book and how you approached that research. Uh, you mentioned in the acknowledgments of the book some of the other books that you'd read, which included, I think, several of Hillary Clinton's memoirs and Bill Clinton's memoir, and then memoirs from other politicians like Kirsten Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren. What were you trying to achieve with that? And were you just kind of looking for the facts of Hillary's life and the life of people around her? Or were you also looking at like their approach to being politicians and what a political life feels like? I think all of the above. I mean, so as research for American Wife, I had read Hillary's first memoir, Living History, back in 2007. So I had sort of an overview of her life. But I felt like I needed to have a really clear handle on the real timeline of her life so that then I could convincingly deviate from it. And then there's, I mean, a lot of times real life has these sort of really juicy details and you don't even, you don't know what you don't know until you kind of read things. One of the interesting things about Hillary Rodham's journey in this book is that she watches as big historical events unfold, but they unfold just a little bit differently than in real life. Like the 60 Minutes interview that Bill Clinton did in 1992 to address rumors that he'd had affairs throughout his marriage. Except in this version, Hillary is not his wife. Are you prepared tonight to say that you've never had an extramarital affair? I'm not prepared tonight to say that any married couple should ever discuss that with anyone but themselves. There's also the moment where Hillary Rodham watches the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, when Anita Hill testified that he'd sexually harassed her while he was her supervisor. That moment has a big impact on Hillary's life. The incident with regard to the coke can 
It's spelled out in my statement. Once again, for me, please. So I asked Curtis why she decided to include those details basically as they transpired in real life. I think for the most part, I I included verbatim words when it felt like they had some larger cultural resonance like the 60 Minutes interview. And I could then like either maintain that relevance or like flip that relevance and and change it somehow. So I think it just felt like those particular words either felt like powerful or resonant or like I couldn't improve upon them. Well, that was my feeling coming across those episodes in the book where I was like, wow, this actually did really happen like this. Like this, this sounds strange and this sounds almost fictional, but it really went down pretty similar to this. Real life is crazy. (laughs) It really is. I want to ask about sex because this book has a lot of sex in it. In a lot of ways, it makes sense that this book does, you know, feature sex as like a a frequent theme because the Clinton presidency was really defined by sex. But I'm curious about whether you felt like those scenes were a way to highlight an aspect of characters and their relationships that go beyond just like talking about Bill Clinton's sex life. So I do have to say, like, <laughs> it's fiction. You know, like, if you if you want to know what Hillary thinks about the world, read Living History or read What Happened, which, of course, many people already have. But this is totally, like, creative and imagined on my part. But her relationship with Bill, obviously in real life and in this novel, is is huge and very important. And, and it's like a passionate love affair. And it seems very plausible that physical attraction is a huge part of that. And, I mean, I almost think, why would a person write a novel and not include like detailed, intimate scenes, not just sexually intimate, but like, you know, like brushing your teeth or eating a snack or like being on a turbulent airplane or like, like if I did the sort of almost like official public version and didn't get personal I don't know what the point would be. I mean, that's a, a memoir exists for that. Like, like novels are almost like you can say the unsayable things and like explore the feelings that you're not really supposed to talk about. And that's what makes all of us human. And that's what makes our lives interesting. And like, we're not the people that we act like when we're giving a speech or like when we're in a meeting with 17 other people. I mean, we're sort of those people, but that's not the the sum of our identity. So to me, it seemed like, you know, natural to include all that. I mean, I, I also, of course, I recognize that it's sort of provocative. And I did wonder if almost just to like spare myself, <laughs> if I should pull those. Because the, the funny thing is, I almost think like I get asked about the sex so much that I almost think a reader could come to this book and be like, there's only like four sex <laughs> scenes in 400 pages. Like This is not the ratio that, that I was hoping for. <laughs> Without giving anything away, do you feel optimistic about the future of women in politics? Especially considering that I would have imagined you would have written this book (laughs) or finished it at at some point last year and then to see what transpired during the nomination process for, for this year's election. 
Yeah, it was actually very surreal. So I was kind of doing like final edits during the last few weeks of like, you know, Elizabeth Warren being in the campaign. And I I felt as if I felt like there was some echo between Elizabeth Warren and like something in Rodham, which I think sort of reveals how there are real and persistent patterns in women running for office and in sort of American ambivalence or discomfort with that. And and I I would say that I do think that this election cycle has felt different in that like when when Hillary was running in 2016 It was hard to untangle. Like if someone says this, are they saying this about Hillary specifically? Are they saying this about the first female major party nominee? And especially when there was sort of dismissive sexist stuff this time around, like in 2019 or early 2020, I think there was more public pushback and more like you could say, what you're saying reveals what you think about women running for office and not about a specific woman such as Klobuchar or Harris. So I I feel like there was some progress kind of in like, you know, tone or even in, it feels somewhat normalized for a woman to run for president. But on the other hand, if you look at the outcome, it doesn't feel like there's progress. And I'm not someone who... Like, I wish I felt like, you know, we're, we're always going forward. We're always moving forward. Like sometimes rapidly, sometimes slowly. Like, I, I don't think that progress is inevitable, but, you know, record-breaking numbers of women have run for office since the 2016 election, which is really exciting. But, but what you're saying about these persistent dynamics that come up when women run for office. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I found really interesting and and also, frankly, really like heartbreaking in the book, which is that you think that if if Hillary takes this different fork in the road, that she won't be brought down by her philandering husband and then everything will be all gravy from there. But it's clear that like many of the same issues come up and many of the same dynamics come up where these kind of structural issues of sexism and and how how female politicians are viewed, that they they still happen just in slightly different ways. I think that's true. And I, I actually do think that the you know, election cycle that we're still in illustrates that where, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you know, I want to vote for a woman, but but just not Hillary. And then it's like, well, I want to vote for a woman, but just not Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or (laughs) Amy Klobuchar or Kirsten Gillibrand. But I do want to vote for a woman. And it's like at some point you're like, hmm, like, what do we forgive a man for? You know, like what gigantic like lapses or awkward comments. And then like, I don't know, it it, it does seem like, uh, you know. I'm not, this is so unoriginal, but that women are held to a different standard than than men are. I think the other interesting thing about the alternate reality that you create in the book is that because it's a political story, there's like something really interesting about the forks in the road that happen because of how 
politics work, right? Like that there is a finite number of jobs. There's only a certain number of senators from each state. And there's a timeline when those jobs open up or don't open up. And that if someone becomes the senator from a certain state, then that means that someone else cannot become that senator, someone that that became senator in real life. And, and I was just wondering what it was like to kind of pick through those moments and elections and decide, well, if this person doesn't run in this race, that means that they wouldn't end up in this position to run in that race and go down that kind of wormhole. It was interesting. And I had to think about it specifically in terms of the Clintons. Like, okay, so the Clintons don't get married in this universe. Does Bill still become governor of Arkansas? If he still becomes governor, does he still declare in 1991 that he's running for president? You know, like, so it was a a weird combination of thinking very literally and then being much more imaginative or trying to create a plot and scenes that would be interesting. But yeah, it is. and, and, And it was almost like, how far out do I need to go? Like if... If there's a different presidential timeline in terms of who gets elected, then presumably there's like a different appointees to the Supreme Court. You know, you can sort of spin out into infinity. And I do think some of the work of the novel was like just deciding what do I change and what do I just kind of like not get into too deeply. And um, yeah, and it's I mean, it's all subjective on my part. It also feels like. A lot of the choices that you make in that alternate reality highlight the issue of trade-offs, right? That for for everyone, but particularly for women and ambitious women, that life is about trade-offs and sacrifices and maybe not having it all. And that you see that play out in Hillary Rodham's life in terms of when she makes different choices and prioritizes different things. And that means that she loses out on other things. I think that's true. And I, I mean, I think, I think that is a real phenomenon in life that, uh, I mean, it's, it seems like the, the kind of idea or the question about, can you have it all was, you know, maybe around the time of like lean in or something that that was like a, a big moment. But I, I, I feel like, it seems like, of course you can't have it all, you know, like, uh, or you can, you can maybe have it all at very different times, but, um, but yeah. And like, it's like, if you have a super high power job, well, it's, I mean, obviously it's all different where I was gonna say, maybe you don't, you don't have children or you don't see your children as much. Of course, right now you probably see your children (laughs) 24 hours a day, but, um, yeah. So it's, I, I, I certainly believe that like, nobody gets everything. I mean, you can lead the dream life on your terms, but like whatever the image is of the public image is of the dream life, I think it's sort of like a, you know, mirage or a fantasy. Curtis Sittenfeld, thank you so much. Thank you, Martine. Curtis Sittenfeld is the author of the novel Rodham, which is out this week. Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. 
We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued. And now, one more thing about what we lose when we physically distance. Human touch is very critical for our bodies, mostly for our physical health. What happens when you're being touched is that you're moving the skin, and that stimulates pressure receptors under the skin. And the pressure receptors, in turn, by neurons, go to the vagus nerve, which is in the brain. It basically slows down the nervous system. Blood pressure is decreased. Your brain waves change. And that, in turn, shuts down or reduces cortisol levels. Cortisol is the the body's stress culprit. I am Tiffany Field, and I run the Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami School of Medicine. Field says that the benefits of touch have been demonstrated in premature infants. There's been 298 or something studies done all over the world on massaging preemies. It's important that the babies get lots of uh, stimulation, tactile stimulation. And so the way we did it was massaging the babies and they gained 47% more weight. They were discharged five days earlier. But the experience of being touched is just as vital for the rest of us. Hand-holding and hugging have been studied um, in laboratory situations uh, where couples are asked to hold hold their hands um, or to hug each other. And what they've found is that they're much less stressed during a stressful situation. If you have a grandparent hugging their own grandchild, that's very meaningful to the grandparent as well as to the grandchild for social, emotional, all kinds of reasons. There's a hormone that gets increased when someone is being physically affectionate to a child, and that, that's called oxytocin. And that gets increased both in the child and in the, in the parent or the grandparent. And that's been called the love hormone because it just makes you feel good. Touch can be beneficial in other relationships too, not just ones with your family. And there were several studies that were done on the NFL and the NBA where they looked at the amount of touching particular teams. And they found that, for example, in the team that touched more, the quarterback played a better game. And in baseball, when people were being hugged after their home runs, that team played a better game. In basketball, the same kind of phenomenon was noted. So high fives, pats on the butt, all of those kind of gestures that communicate, I like being on the team with you. But what do you do if you're alone during this pandemic and you're missing this feeling of being touched by other people? The important thing is just moving the skin. So I've been telling people who are alone that if they're not getting any touch, what they need to be doing is either massaging themselves, hugging themselves, just rubbing their legs, swinging your legs when you're sitting. So you're stimulating the the pressure receptors in your legs, walking around the floor. So you're stimulating pressure receptors in your feet. And even our hand washing is stimulating pressure receptors under our skin. So even that is going to be very therapeutic. 
I'm very hopeful that this might turn around touch within families and within relationships. If it's helping the people who are intimately involved doing more touching, I think that will be a, a great result of, of this um, stay at home. And I'm hoping that in this time when we have to stay at home, that people are going to be touching each other more than they, they usually do. And they may come to appreciate how important it is and not be on their cell phones so much. Tiffany Field is the director of the Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami School of Medicine. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. We'll have a bonus episode over the weekend about one of the surprising stumbling blocks as states reopen. And we'll be off on Monday for Memorial Day. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. Have a great holiday weekend. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind or simply love one, Now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued.